I would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the land on which the House of Sin and Studio stand today. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and also extend that respect to First Nations people here listening today. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. Why do we want I haven't flip-flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I've stuck to it. I didn't need to do this. I've already done a lot of war for the election. The English fought a civil war over this this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children, your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what is right. Represent. 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 You're listening to Represent. You're listening to Represent here on Sin with George, Tao, Tom and myself. Now, WA has been through their election and as you know, it has been a pretty much a bloodbath for the WA Liberals, but a thumping uh, victory for Premier Mark McGowan. Um, Labor is set to win 53 out of 59 lower house seats, uh, marking the biggest win in Australian political history, beating their high mark of 41 seats in the last election and making Premier Mark McGowan one of the most popular political figures in Australian history. Now, as of the end of counting over the weekend, 58.2% of the primary vote went to Labour, which is an incredibly rare um, and unbelievable result because normally 58% is normally the amount that that you get in a two-party preferred result. So the fact that they were able to win a majority of, of primary votes reflects the, the devastating win um, that um, they that WA Labor was able to achieve over the weekend. Um, as such, li- the Liberals have been relegated to minor party status with them winning um, only two seats um, thus far. Um, and Zach Kirkup, opposition leader Zach Kirkup, losing his own seat. So making the Nationals the official opposition party with currently four seats. Um, they also, WA Liberals, lose the public funding associated with major party status, which requires a minimum of five seats in WA. Um, and as a result of the devastating loss um Zach Kirkup has indicated that he will leave the political arena. Now, Tao, looking at the results, what were the key factors of success for Premier Mark McGowan? The pandemic was one of the best things to happen to Mark McGowan standing in the polls. Um, He obviously was enjoying um, some advantage in the two-party preferred polling, um, obviously having won the last election, but come the come the pandemic, his government's decision to close borders and the opposition, the, the Liberals' opposition to closing borders really put them at odds with the with the general public once they saw, you know, the, the economic and the social devastation, I suppose, and the, the turmoil that was happening on the eastern coasts. Um, that was one of the major 
one of the major the major reasons that the Liberals have experienced this massive setback. Um, and you know, throughout the pandemic, Mark McGowan fostered this almost cult of personality. We saw it here in Victoria. Um, you know, it was it was probably a bit more polarizing, a lot more polarizing here in terms of our harsh lockdowns. But we saw the way that people gravitated towards these, you know, key premiers um, throughout the pandemic, marking like you know a, a greater awareness, I suppose, of of state politics. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, the states probably had less exposure, and you know, before you know, in, in WA, prior to the pandemic, people probably just voted you know, the general way that they always voted, but having the prominence of someone like Mark McGowan being up there every day in front of press conferences. Um, yeah, this pandemic really put him in the limelight and he's, uh, he's taken home the bacon here. Yeah, that's definitely for sure. Um, we've, we've seen that Mark McGowan's uh, approval rating reach 91% um, at uh, September last year. So that really indicates how much of a rock and star the, figure he and is the 9% in WA that, politics. Uh, don't approve. You know, they're the ones that actually want him to shut the border entirely, completely and secede, probably, because that's just about as far as WA's gotten. For now. For now. For now. But we'll see. Um, but Tom, what were the um uh, what factors led to the bloodbath by the WA Liberal Party in this case? Well, I think Tal touched on it a little bit before, but um, it would have to come back to both um, picking Kirk Hub as the opposition leader in the lead-up to the election, the opposition to border closures, as Tal said, but also um, going to the left of Labor on environmental issues right before the election um, would have been the killer blow, I would have thought, um, in WA, and I think that it w- it probably would have cost him a few uh, a few more seats and maybe they could have stayed the major party uh, the major opposition party in uh, in WA but now they're no longer yeah it's certainly interesting particularly if you're sort of losing you're at risk of losing your own party seats what you really want to do is turn out your base and nothing turns out the Liberal Party base more than a green energy climate policy now, right? <laughs> um, obviously, that didn't work to their favour. And, you know, it was a tragic misread on Zach Kirkup's part um, to not read the tailwinds that was, oh, sorry, the headwinds that was happening in his case and not try to sandbag or actually turn out his base. And what you saw on polling day was that you've got first you know, first-time Labour voters um, turning out to the polls who have voted Liberal their whole lives. And, in fact, they weren't voting just for the Labour Party, but they were mainly voting for Mark McGowan with a lot of anecdotes of people just pushing past the uh, the uh, how-to-vote card handout people and just saying, oh, I'm just voting for Mark McGowan. They didn't They didn't care who their, their, their local representatives were. They just wanted to return Mark McGowan into power. Um, so that's a very interesting um, anecdote there. Um, but, George, what does this mean for federal liberals given this um, landslide win? Yeah, well, it's kind of just throws momentum towards Labour in general um, with the upcoming federal election. We know that now that it's just South Australia, Tasmania and New South Wales who currently 
have a liberal uh, leadership in government. Um, so that could only really prove, prove to be um, allowing more public support and better um, publicity for Labour in general. But as Tell actually alluded to before during the um, break, when he was saying that in Queensland, that occasionally, um, even though Queensland vote Labour on a state level, sometimes the Liberals actually take over on a federal level, we'd like to... Yeah, it's just in the last 20 years or so, um, Queensland has had an interesting, um, they like to balance the ledger in their in their state elections where if, state and federal elections. So they like to vote so that they, yeah, I can't, yeah, keeping the, keeping the ledger level, um, <laughs> ledger level. Yeah, keeping state uh, and federal opposite, uh, opposing parties. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what will happen in WA, uh, obviously in federal politics at the moment. Matthias Cormann and Julie Bishop uh, left in the last couple of years, who are some big names um, from out in the out in the West, and uh, Christian Porter, who and and the, the Defence Minister Linda Reynolds, who are both caught up um, in in mental health leave at the moment. Uh, they're both from WA as well, so uh, there's a lot going on about about those uh, ministers, depending on what side of politics you're on. It could go either way on 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 how the how the people of WA view those figures, but it it definitely you know sows some instability um, among federal federal liberals um, in the lead up to the next election. Yeah, it definitely must be noted though that um, uh, to buttress your point on the Queensland um, anecdote that um, if um, the results of the WA state election in 2017, the swings were replicated in the federal election in that year, um, then we would have um, five Liberal MPs losing their seats in WA. Um, now, as we know, in 2017, no Liberal W sorry, no WA Liberal MPs at the federal level lost their seats. So, the public is very aware of the separation between the federal and the state level, and it will definitely be interesting to see whether any of the momentum from this state election translates over to the federal level. Now, to start the second segment off, we are going to be discussing the impact of the Austria, of the Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine rollout, which has been paused in some nations in the EU and throughout the international community. Now, it'll keep on going on in um, Australia because basically what's happened is the European Medicines Agency um, have basically said that there may be a correlation between the Oxford vaccine and also some blood clots. Uh, there was a report saying that 37 cases um, of those who have been immunised in Europe have uh, had cases of blood clotting. Um, however, in Australia, Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly said the government's expert group on vaccines met and basically said that based on the evidence, there was no reason to pause the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in Australia. Now, there is a bit of controversy, I guess, to say with this decision to pause. We know in countries such as France, Austria and Denmark, they have basically paused the rollout. Uh, there have been nations who have also in Europe who have actually said that, no, there is no reason to pause. Uh, we should just continue, including England, when Boris Johnson did come out and say that uh, there was about 11 million uh, people who have been vaccinated without any sign to pause the rollout in itself. Um, 
it is it does beg the question that is it necessary to pause the rollout considering that only 37 cases have been reported out of 17 million um not only does that cause i guess a bit of worry amongst the public as to whether the vaccine should go ahead in general but it also um kind of begs the question are we going to just stop uh the vaccines when any minor possible very limited uh occurrence of a problem with the vaccine might occur um it doesn't exactly make sense to a whole lot of people because we know that eight percent of people um in some stage during their life actually get blood clotting to some concern um and if we're gonna uh, just stop a vaccine rollout like that, then we could stop it based off anything. If there was heart attacks, say someone died from a heart attack three days after they got a vaccine, it doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccine caused it. It's the idea of correlation and causation doesn't always link. However, there are people smarter than myself from the European Medicines Agency who have obviously taken the stance and maybe there's something that we don't know, I guess, um, about the correlation between the two, but I will quickly go to you, Tom. Basically, how will this affect the public's confidence in taking the vaccine with this added negative publicity of especially the AstraZeneca vaccine in itself? Um, yeah, the, the it will cause the vaccine, you know, the brand of its vaccine to go down, if you will, and I think that it will be multiplied by the media's response we saw that even at the start of the pandemic just before lockdown the repeated um uh, coverage of panic buying sort of exacerbated it and grew it exponentially and i feel like if something like that for um the vac well this vaccine and its side effects were to happen again by through the media by the media um that there would be a exponential increase in fear to have it and i don't think we want that um and the government certainly doesn't want that yeah well the basically there should be no reason why astrazeneca and oxford would not be transparent with um, the impacts of vaccine because of the vaccine that they've distributed because it is kind of a trust game. Um, it's bound to come out eventually if there were to be problems with the vaccine. Um, if hundreds of people suddenly um, started having heart attacks, then obviously like there will be a quite enormous turnaround with the public sentiment. But um, yeah, I guess it does not help at all and it could lead to the carry-on fear of um, whether the AstraZeneca vaccine should be taken ahead. Now, Fiat, uh, do you think these concerns are justified? I mean, in terms of the concerns, um, there there is a theoretical reason as to um, what might be happening. And if you wanted to learn more in detail about the bio, biology of what may, uh, the reasoning behind this, um, I would encourage you to listen to Dr. Norman Swan on ABC's CoronaCast podcast, because he does go into this in depth. Um, but basically what is happening here is not entirely typical of what ha- normally happens because how blood clot forms in a very quick uh, sense is that you need platelets to clump together to cause a blood clot. Now, we, we do know from reports that people who take the vaccine has, have low blood platelet counts. So these are the, the tiny organisms which really, contrib- which really help to, 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 uh, um, to do a blood clot. 
but we're having people who have blood clots with low blood platelet counts. So this is a very unusual, it's, it's a very unusual phenomenon. Um, so there is a biological possibility here um, that is that may be um, at play with the vaccine. But we do know, and as you said, um, the major agencies, so we've got the Norway where the in- incidences of this first recorded, UK, Australia, the WHO, and their European Medicines Agency um, suspect that it's not a causal relationship. Um, and it goes back to that question of correlation versus causation, because as you said, 8% of people in their lifetimes will be affected by blood clots to some degree of dangerousness. Um, So I think the key part of this is that, um, as you said, trust and transparency, that's a key part of it. And we saw this at play in Queensland when uh, one of the doctors administered an incorrect dosage and the federal and state governments were very quick to um, open themselves up to scrutiny, open themselves up to a full and proper investigation to make sure that everything that did happen um, was properly investigated. But Tal, what do you have to say about this? Back at the beginning of the pandemic, there was lots of talk about the human cost and what kind of human cost society could handle. Um, you know, somewhere like Sweden was um, a, a governmental response that viewed the human cost as something that the s- society could absorb um, for the betterment of the economy and, you know, and, and the kind of things that don't take a hit when you, when you, when society keeps functioning as per normal. Um, you, you know, a year on, we've seen that that is Sweden is a, a terrible model to follow. The United States is, is another example of a terrible model to follow. You have to take these things seriously. Now that we're a year on and we're in the vaccine rollout phase, that human cost argument, I think, is probably rearing its head again. Um, so obviously all the biological and, and medical concerns that you raise there, Viet, they absolutely have to be taken into consideration. And, you know, there is some, you know, I don't particularly have a stance either way on this, but there is a discussion there about the human cost. And I know that some people out there are having it. When these vaccines get rolled out, there is a danger. Um, and some people would argue one way or the other that we should pause everything and make sure everything's absolutely safe. Um, and other people would say, plow ahead. If these vaccines do work, which we're seeing that they do on the whole, then that should be the way that, that we go. Viet? Yeah, to be clear, so that theoretical reason is purely uh, like it, it makes sense on paper, but it, there is yet to be strong empirical evidence for that. So I just wanted Absolutely. to make that yeah. clear. Um, and we'll see in terms of the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, what comes out of their investigation, um, which will come out um, today when you're listening to it on Friday. Um, but go, going back to your, your um, point, it is a question of risk and uh, a balance of risks here because... Um, interestingly enough, people who have um, people who have blood clotting as a general um, um, chronic condition, okay, they are already at a higher risk of contracting COVID. So, ironically, they do have to get the vaccine to make sure that they're not they're not um, it's a, it's a they're not going to die of yeah. COVID. Yeah. Um, so it's a damn if you it is a catch twenty two, and so. It, 
Yeah. And given that this evidence of blood clotting is purely theoretical and not empirical in this case, um, it's it's a question of, you know, what is more more harmful, what is uh, more risky. Um, but yeah, it's how the government is also words? lagging behind already on the vaccine rollout. The proposed date that yeah. uh, all of Australia was supposed to be vaccinated on, which was October, they've already said that was, oh, no, 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 that's not every vaccination, that's just everyone's first lot of vaccinations, it'll all be completed by December. So it's already starting to spin out. Um, the, the government really can't afford, if it wants to hit its its major uh, marks, it can't afford to pause the vaccine rollout. George? Yeah, um, just quickly with that, tell the AstraZeneca vaccine rollout in itself, I know we're going a bit off topic, but the way that it's been... Um, rolled out in Australia is quite astronomical because we were um, initially we approved AstraZeneca and the Pfizer after um, before that but we still haven't even vaccinated all the hotel security or the frontline workers which is the ones which is the shield of war between maintaining um, it going from hotel quarantine which is where all the arrivals of coronavirus come into Australia to um, the public which it's kind of where it's it's in one sense we need a do everything we can to stop it so we've kind of got to rush the vaccines but at the other hand um it's not going to help unless we don't get the vaccines to the frontline workers and their families as well who can transmit it to the public but that is the end of the segment and that was how we were discussing how the astrazeneca vaccine um will be paused and um as viet alluded to before on friday the european medicines agency will be discussing to see the future actions and the further findings on whether blood clotting is a significant correlation to um, someone taking the vaccine. Um, and earlier today, I caught up with uh, Greg Larson, a comedian and a political commentator on Twitter, and I interviewed him about his comedy and politics and how the two have merged over the years and how comedy has changed through uh, due to the political climate. Um, he currently uh, is about to do a run of shows during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Um, this year his show is called This Might Not Be Hell. Um, he'll tell you a little bit about it in the interview and all the ticketing information is available at comedyfestival.com.au. I've got uh, Greg Larson. How are you going, Greg? Good, thanks. How are you? Good, not too bad, not too bad. So, yeah. um, you're a stand-up comedian who mm-hmm. also you know, talks a lot about politics. Um, yep. Do you remember when you got interested in politics and um, when, you know, you were, you know, at uni or even at high school, what got you interested mm-hmm. and what were the major events? Well, I mean, I feel like I was always, I was always interested in politics right out of high school when I started playing in a lot of punk bands and I was kind of exposed to, I guess, political opinions through punk music. Um, and that was kind of, you know, where I, where I sort of fit in back then, back when I was in my late teens. And then I, um, after that, when I went to university and I I studied sociology um, and it was through, you know, my degree that I became, probably a lot more politically active and a lot more like, I guess, knowledgeable and, you know, rather than just, you know, I I used to be kind of like an anarchist or, you know, like 
back in the, my punk days, but I, I think I've been my, my political opinions have changed significantly since then. But I'm um, yeah, university really is where I sort of formed most of my opinions and passions. Cool. So how did you get from punk to comedy then? Well, I kind of just stopped. Kind of just stopped doing. Stop being in bands, you know, like the last, I was in a bunch of different bands and, and not all punk bands as well, like heavy metal. And I was in a ska band for a brief period of time. Um, but I, I just kind of, that, they just kind of faded away, you know, as, you know, like I left one band and then next thing I know, I just haven't been in a band for a little while. And, and then, so it was a separate thing when I went into comedy, going into comedy was a couple of years after I sort of stopped you know, gigging with music. And a few years later, I kind of, I mean, a friend of mine were talking about it and talking about comedy and I was at uni at the time and I, I decided to give it a crack and I, I, I've been doing it ever since. Awesome, awesome. Um, and then you worked on, you know, on a show on the ABC that was um, every mm. day writing comedy specifically mm. about politics. Um, mm. What was that like, and where did you stand with the politics, Australian politics, when you left the show? Oh, that was hell on earth. <laughs> um, it was, it was hard. It was hard, man. Like it was, it was, it was really just a, a huge workload. And you're kind of waking up in the morning, and the first thing you're doing is checking the news, trying to find stuff to write jokes about and comedy about that day. And it really it was a lot of fun and everyone on the team was really cool. Um, but it was also just, you know, you get burnt out by the end of it. Cause you know, I think after I finished that show, I didn't read the news for two months. <laughs> um, I just needed to decompress, but um, yeah, like I, I would say my political opinions got more radical after doing that show. Just when you're in the world of, and especially at the, at the ABC, you're in the world of, you know, politics and, I guess people who are on the inside of politics and it's really, there's a lot of gross stuff in terms of, you know, journalists being mates with politicians and, and, you know, the liberal party just absolutely gutting the ABC and just destroying it whilst the ABC is then turning around and kind of being nice to the liberal party. It, it, it really, um, I think it, it made me a lot more radical after that, but, um, certainly I'm, you know, I know a lot more about, you know, individuals and stuff within, within um, government. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was it was a really interesting time. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like such hard work doing it every day. Um, yeah. Has politics always been a part of your comedy? No. Um, in fact, I would say it it mostly wasn't at first because especially when I was at uni, I kind of like comedy was just something separate to that. It was more just purely fun. So I, you know, when I was at uni, like writing essays and stuff, I could then do something silly on stage and just not think about politics and sociology and social issues. So originally I actually made a conscious choice to not, not do politics. And the other thing is, and uh, you know, political comedy can be good and sometimes it can be really preachy and kind of, eh, you know, like making puns about politicians, last names and stuff. It, it can get kind of boring sometimes. So like 
I, I wasn't a big fan of political comedy, um, but more and more my political opinions just kept coming through. And and I still would say that most of my stand-up isn't political, but every now and again, like this year, I'll do a show that is very political. Um, and, mm. you know, so it sort of, it changes. Changes from year to year how much politics I have in my comedy. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So this this year's comedy festival, you're doing a play, is it? A one, mm, one, yeah. Do you want to speak a little bit about what what it's about? Yeah, so the it's a it's a it's a one man play about living on the dole, um, and it's about living on the dole. And I've set it during the Howard year, so it's set in 2004. Mm-hmm. And the reason I set it in 2004 was because that was when I spent was around that time that I spent my longest stretch on the dole. Um, and I, you know, I, back then I, I did work for the dole and I did all this, all the all the rest of it, and I was on the dole for quite a while. So that is a time period I felt like I could get, I could be accurate with. And it was also the time period where Australia had really just been conditioned to hate the quote-unquote dole bludger. You know, we were living in a time where work for the dole was this new thing, where Centrelink... Centrelink was fairly new at the time. Before that, it was the, um, and I've totally drawn a blank on what it was called, but it wasn't called Centrelink. It was another uh, agency. And they changed the way it worked and they privatised a lot of the functions that, that Centrelink would do. And it was a time when the unemployed person was really, or the, the Australian public was really taught to hate the unemployed person and that they were scum and work for the doll was brought in to punish them and all the rest of it. So... I felt like that was a good time to set this. And it was also useful because back then, the amount of money I was making on the dole is pretty much the same as what you'd be making on the dole now. Well, not now because of job seeker, but it, it hasn't really increased. Um, and it's, and it, took a, it literally took a global pandemic for it to increase. So it was, um, it was a hard time and I, I wanted to sort of talk about what it felt like to be on the doll. Yeah, yeah. It definitely mm. hasn't changed. And, mm. you know, stuff like the cashless debit card, you know, in some ways it's gotten worse. Yeah. Uh, oh, big time. Yeah. Um, so the last question I wanted to ask is, what's the, the stuff in the Australian political climate that makes you really angry at the moment? Um there's probably a royally, really long list. Mm. So <laughs> keep it to keep it short, but yeah. Oh, yeah. That's 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 a tough one to sort of nail down into a short list. But I mean, the Liberal Party in general, I I I despise. I really, really hate the Liberal Party, and to the point where I would I would argue that and this is just my opinion, but I don't think that. You know, I don't think that the Liberal Party are trying to do the right thing. I, I don't believe that they are anymore. Like, back back in the day, I might have thought, well, hey, look, I disagree with them. I have different opinions. But these days, I actually think, no, they they don't care about this country or the, the people of this country. They just want to, they just want to fill their pockets. That's what I believe. And I I am constantly disgusted at the amount of money that goes into the Liberal Party that then comes out in, in, well, for example, in the sports rorts thing, you know, in 
whenever you see like private businesses like Foxtel getting government grants from the Liberal Party, whilst at the same time the ABC funding is getting cut, these things really piss me off because it's hard to see. It's hard to see how this is okay. Like, I think there's just so much corruption in there that, and and the resistance against the corruption commission is is infuriating. And then, of course, that doesn't even get started on all the recent stuff about sexual assault allegations and the way Christian Porter is suing the ABC and the way that they're they're not even reading the the allegations against him. It's just it's mind boggling. So. There's a, there's a million things that infuriate me, but they all come back to the Liberal Party. I really despise the Liberal Party. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard not to not like. Yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. So thank you so much. So just to remind everyone, your comedy festival show is on this starts on the 25th, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's called This Might Not Be Hell. I think you can get tickets at comedyfestival.com.au. Um, mm-hmm. awesome. So thank you so much for being on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Um, coming up in this next seg- next segment, um, we're going to be talking about some fairly heavy stuff, uh, including uh, domestic violence, um, sexual abuse, um, and, and, and violence. So if, if you or anyone you know need support, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Domestic and Violence Family Violence Counseling Service on one eight hundred RESPECT Lifeline on thirteen eleven fourteen or Beyond Blue on thirteen hundred two two four six three six. Now the Prime Minister made the comment this week that women in Australia uh, are lucky that they are able to protest and that they're not being shot in the streets. Government policy has come out to to show that when they're at risk of violence in their own homes, women are going to be paying for it. Uh, by potentially having to withdraw uh, in dire circumstances out of their own superannuation, up to $10,000 of it. Um, it's been met with heavy criticism from uh, from groups all across the political and social uh, spectrum. Um, and it's just another, another indicator uh, of the policy reactions to not only the pandemic, but also to violence in our communities that puts the, um, puts the onus on women um, and, uh, and you know, is something that continues to put women in a position where they have to shoulder the responsibility um, when, it's not theirs, when it's not theirs to shoulder. Um, both parties have capitalised uh, on International Women's Day and, and this, this period where the government has been under such scrutiny for its treatment of women uh, with promises to counter the disproportionate effects of the pandemic on women the gender wage gap and the continuing violence against women in their homes, workplaces, and in public. Um, women took the street to the streets this week in the March for Justice all across the country uh, with tens of thousands of women, uh, children, and their supporters turning out to the streets uh, and really showcasing anger, resentment, and an attitude that they are fed up completely um, with the state of the country. We are... I'd like to make it clear, three men um, sitting around talking about this. It's something that obviously affects our lives, but in nowhere near uh, affects our lives as much as it does the women in our lives. Um, and it's I'm sure it's taking a toll on a lot of people around the country. Question time this week was 
to me, a, a bit of a debacle. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys caught much of it, but Labor put to the put to the government a, a lot of questions uh, from their female front and back benches directly to the Prime Minister about the culture um, of the Liberal Party, the culture of government in regards to women, and the government responded by deflecting and uh, trying to put the uh, trying to put responsibility on people like Bill Shorten or trying to direct attention to people like Bill Shorten for the management of his sexual assault allegations a few years ago um, and trying to pump up their own tires by fielding softball questions uh, about the handling of the pandemic. Um, it's been a, it's been a quite a, quite a full on week. And I just thought it'd be good to get some of our thoughts on it. Um, Tom, what have your thoughts been on the week uh, that we've just seen? Um, and 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 how the government's approach has sat with you? Uh, yeah, it's been a pretty horrific week. Um, when I first saw the reports of what occurred in Question Time, I didn't believe it. Like I, I just like thought I thought it was a chaser, like post, like someone had made it up. It was so unbelievable. And this entire week has just been trying to understand how someone could be, like how someone could say that, how someone could be like that. And it, it's, it started, you know, weeks ago from the government's approach to um, Brittany Higgins, a, a, a survivor of sexual assault inside Parliament, to the press conference of Christian Porter and the decision to put their heads in the sand on this extremely important topic and pretend that eventually the media will stop reporting on it so it's not our problem. It doesn't even it doesn't make sense why a government would do that, let alone a person would even think that this is the right thing to do. And it's a free and I I posted about this online. I feel ashamed to be Australian right now. Like, it's horrific. Um, I don't know. I'm just left angry and ashamed, to be honest. Um, Viet, how do you feel? Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, moment in history that we're currently living through um, because especially after the... Um, allegations of um of the actions that christian porter um made i feel like everything that's happened is a confluence of two spheres colliding into one here where you've got um on one end you've got the the women's rights movement that has gone through for decades and decades where they've been um there's all sorts of oppression against women that have been happening for as long as history can and can go on for. Um, and they are justified in their anger, which we saw what happens when you oppress um, the women's movement, women's rights for so long. That anger just um, really showed on Monday. And then you've got the other side, which is the legal aspect where it's in this case held up in the fact that there, you know, the the police process, the criminal process has run its course, and then what we're left with in the middle is the political question, which is what Scott Morrison is dealing with, and it, right now he's not really uh, balancing 
um, those two spheres of um, influence very well. And I feel like he's erring more away from um, from the injustices against women and more towards um, protecting and relying on the rule of law um, in his um, perspective anyway to um, support Christian Porter. But George, what do you have to add? Yeah, I, I think kind of just to go on that is that I think the Scott Morrison response to it in itself is definitely a political response um, when it's a human issue of women's but, rights in but general. Can I just can um, I ask you, George? Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What what politically what decision was it? You know? Um, like I can't, I can't yeah, even, well, it was probably think. probably when he um tried to almost take credit for the fact that Australia was um a democracy and that we should somehow um be grateful for the fact that we don't we don't get gunned down on the streets. I'm not quite exactly sure what his entire quote was, but that he was basically saying that. Um, yes, we should be proud of the fact that um, that protests can go on, which we've been able to protest for a very long time. I'm not quite sure why he's trying to garner political points on the basis of um, being able to protest in general. So did you have something to add to that? He is, like like you said just then, he's trying to gain some kudos from a very basic human right, the right to protest, the right to gather peacefully. But at the same time, the basic human rights of women within parliament and around the country are being breached every single day. The amount of women that die um, yeah. at the hands of men every single year is atrocious and it is a basic human right, which isn't being addressed. And I find it so disingenuous, this rule of law argument and this insistence that the police have the final say when we know the staggering numbers of sexual assaults that don't that they either go unreported in the first instance or aren't continued for a, for a, for a large number of reasons, including um, including them being withdrawn because the process is just so – it just wears people down. And I, the, the bravery of Brittany Higgins um, and other survivors around the country, but Brittany Higgins is the face of it at the moment, to be continuing to, to front up, continuing – the um the fight continuing the struggle i think it's it's pretty incredible um and and yeah it's very disingenuous to survivors to say that the police have the final say when we know for a fact that just because they don't act doesn't mean that it isn't true or it should or or it shouldn't at least be yeah and to buttress and to buttress your point on the rule of law um Something that I came to the realization of this week is that, you know, sure, the rule of law has, you know, upheld in this case, Christian Porter will never be subject to a, a criminal lawsuit. Um, we do know that. Um, but when it comes to the question of an independent inquiry, um, when we think about it, okay, people people do lose jobs based upon allegations they do not need a criminal conviction and what i'm thinking of in this case is the working with children check 
right? You do not need a criminal conviction for you, you to be ruled as a teacher or as someone who works with children to be not a fit and proper person to work with children. And so the same argument could be used in, in favor of an independent inquiry or investigation into Christian Porter because the question is no longer whether or not he um, is criminally liable, but whether or not he is a fit and proper person to be the, this country's first law officer. And just like how we all have to go through working with children's checks, where as long as we have a credible allegation against us, that will bar us from particular jobs such as being a teacher, working with children but tell what do you have just, to just add to that. that the government's continual line is that the rule of law applies to every person man woman and child in australia equally when as a matter of fact it's not entirely true because our government ministers need to be above reproach um, and in terms of the rule of law they need to be so squeaky clean that an independent inquiry to clear the name that is what should happen. It's looking like it's going to be getting, it, it, it looks like it's not going to happen. However, a defamation suit against the ABC will be going ahead. And what gets raised in that may have similar outcomes to an independent inquiry when it comes to presenting evidence and Christian Porter actually taking the stand. So we will, in a, in a weird, twisted kind of way, have more revelations on the allegations in some form or another. Um, which will happen at some point. But um, the story is far from over. Um, a lot of change is hopefully going to be made. Um, but the government's response at the moment shows that it's going to fight it every step of the way. Um, like we said at the start, that was some heavy stuff. And if you or anyone that you know needs support, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Domestic and Family Violence Counseling Service on 1-800-RESPECT, Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue, or one 224 636 Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. I haven't flip-flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I've stuck to it. I didn't need to do this. And I've already done a lot of war for the election. The English fought a civil war over this matter. Over this matter. Don't do the nuance of the Canberra bubble. I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children and your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what it was right. Represent. 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 You're listening to Represent.